Welcome into 20th and Blake here on the Mile High Sports Podcast Network. I'm your host, Drew Creaseman, and as always, I'm excited to be talking Colorado Rockies baseball with you here on the show. And I figure before we get into all the offseason talk, a lot of people today and tomorrow and around these times as I'm recording this are going to be declaring free agency. There's going to be a lot of uh, this guy's opted out of a contract or opted into a contract. Stuff going on today with like Joey Votto and Marcus Stroman and all kinds of fun stuff to talk about. So we'll do that here in a couple of days when it's uh, the picture's a bit more clear and we can have a conversation about whether or not the Rockies should be interested in any of those. A little bit of a spoiler right now, as I've often said before, those big names, almost certainly not. But there will be a few other ones to take an interesting look at. But before we get into all of that, I figured let's do... One last wrap-up of the 2023 season, but as a way of looking forward, because I know for a lot of us here, right, the the 2023 season wrapped up a while ago, (laughs) in June, (laughs) kind of, right? But what can we learn from the 2023 World Series in particular, right? The ultimate goal is, of course, to get to the dance and, and win the big one. That's what this is all about, winning championships and ultimately the rest of it should be in service of getting there. As I've often said, I have just completely balked historically at the notion that, you know, anybody who didn't win the championship had a failure of a season. And there are a lot of things that you can learn uh, from even teams that didn't make the World Series, right? But ultimately, honing in on that, because that is the end goal, a lot of times we can learn things. And I've got to give a big congratulations to the Texas Rangers for winning their first ever. Of course, another reminder that sometimes it takes a very, very long time now, right? That leaves your Colorado Rockies as one of four teams who have still never, ever won the World Series, which also includes, by the way, the San Diego Padres, who are a team we're going to be talking about throughout the offseason. They're in a really weird spot as it is right now, right? But I do want to begin, like I said, with a congratulations to the to the Texas Rangers, absolutely, But of course, to our old friend, John Gray. This was really exciting for me to watch on on a personal level as somebody who I think most of you know. John was always a little bit of a, a special player to me. He was the second or third player that I ever interviewed at all on any level, even a little bit, right? There was, I got my first... A writing gig on assignment. It wasn't all that. I, the reason I was hesitating so much there was that I drove home to visit my mom and go watch some baseball. I had just gotten, you know, a gig doing some writing for Purple Row, but I, I really wasn't a professional at the time, right? I was just winging it. I had very little guidance. I was just out there. I didn't know what I was doing. I had this big like yellow legal pad I was writing things down on. I didn't have a smartphone yet. I didn't have a phone that could record stuff. Like there was so much thinking about it, about that first trip out to Grand Junction that it's wild to me that it went the way that it did. I had no real plans going in. I had literally no experience going in. And I actually ended up interviewing Dan O'Dowd at some point (laughs) during that whole process. So I guess it was a good thing that at the very least, I had always been interested in baseball and I could at least hang a little bit. In hindsight, I would redo a lot of it differently, right? The very first player that I ever interviewed had thrown a one hitter the day before with like a hundred degree temperature in 
100 degrees. Like it, it was amazing. It was a guy named Zach Gemiola who managed to get up to uh, AAA with the Rockies, but never did make his major league debut. And the second player that I interviewed, I'm pretty sure Jordan Patterson might have been also before them. But then it was John Gray. Like I said, he's either second or third. The guy I was really out there to see, right? It was right after that 2013 draft. I was there to see him and Ryan McMahon and a few other guys that were taken there. Dom Nunez was a part of that draft. Uh, But obviously, Gray was the headline main attraction, right? Number three overall, uh, taken out of Oklahoma. Guy was pumping 100 coming out of college, right? So there was a lot of hype for him. And he really was one of those guys at the minor league level where you just looked and you went, okay, he's going to be a thing, right? Like some of these other guys, they may or may not make it. Uh, A lot of them looked exactly like what they were. And you do have a weird collection of talent at like the rookie level where there's a lot of like high school level players, a lot of guys who were maybe in the United States for the very first time. And then you do have a lot more polished guys like John Gray or when Kyle Freeland did it, who had several years of college who were a bit more advanced, certainly older, right? But still, and like the body type was different. And John was just a big guy with a big arm pumping a hundred back then, really sitting on a hundred miles an hour and blowing these guys away. And it was incredible. But of course, what struck me about talking to him in that very first interview way back in 2013, which is how self-effacing he is, just what a normal human being he is. It maybe in some ways set me up for a, a bit of a false expectation that they would all be that way, though I will say overwhelmingly the ball players that I have met between then and now have largely been normal human beings. And the ones who haven't, you know, some of the ones who are over-the-top, larger-than-life characters, whether it's either Cargo in the really, really good way, or people like Tulo and Nolan who are a bit more guarded, I would say it's still understandable when you're that level of star player, right? But John was just such a dude who you could imagine, like, going and having a LAN party with, you know, for those of you that don't know what that, it's a video game thing. Uh, Just going and, you know, getting some friends over and drinking a bunch of Dr. Pepper and playing Halo or whatever. Like he just seemed like, and, and I came to learn that's exactly the kind of guy that he is. I got to know him a decent amount over the years. One of my favorite stories from that first time though, was talking to his host family and learning about the way that he would come home after, you know, games or or practice or whatever, you know, working out a decent amount of exertion and he'd be pretty tired. And they had a a couple of young boys who were baseball fans and that John Gray would just go in the backyard and and throw the baseball around with them. Just play catch, even though he's been playing baseball all day and it's his job and he could be, you know, this, that or the other. And it's just this host family. And, you know, he he could just as easily. And I'm sure they would told him, like, "You, you don't have to do this, but he was just down to do it. It was a story that always stuck with me as something that absolutely exemplifies who, and you can never know 100% for sure. These guys don't let you entirely into their personal lives, nor should they, by the way. (laughs) You know, there's that weird line as a journalist between, I want to bring you into the clubhouse. I want to help you understand how these people are as people and, and not just as baseball players. But at the same time, I, I can only to so, you know, deep an extent, evaluate a person's character. 
But as I have said it on several occasions in the past, John was one of those guys who I felt like I did get to know a little bit more, who was always incredibly kind and respectful to me. We had a lot of the same hobbies, a lot of the same interests, a lot of the same things that we would talk about, stuff that we thought was really cool. Uh, like I remember telling him the first time he was in a video game, he thought that was awesome. Uh, I happened to be the person who told him after his big 16 strikeout game at Coors Field that he had broken a Randy Johnson record. Actually, I think he tied the Randy Johnson record. A lot of folks were understandably, you know, they were talking about he broke the Coors Field record, which had belonged to Daryl Kyle, um, or maybe the Rockies record. The Coors Field record, I think, is now tied with him and Randy Johnson. And so I wanted to put that name on uh, into his ears. And he, he goes, oh, man, I used to play as him in the video games. I went, dude, me too. <laughs> Ken Griffey Jr. Baseball, 98, on the Nintendo 64. Uh, but, you know, he, he's somebody that even though you have to wear your journalist hat and not root, uh, you, you have to be able to clearly, you know, identify. Uh, I, throughout the years, would right? There was the season, uh, unfortunately, his worst season as a Colorado Rocky was 2018, the, the year that the team did the best uh, during his era. Right. Just had an absolutely horrible year, both professionally. And I, and I know it was tough on him personally that a lot of the criticism uh, in the media and so and quite frankly, some totally unfair stuff that was said about his mental health and his anxiety uh, and the way he handled certain things that I thought was completely unfair. And I know it impacted him in that 2018 season. Like He lost a ton of weight uh, and he just had a really, really rough year. Right. And ended up. Uh, not even being on the roster when they ended up going to Chicago and Milwaukee. And that was really disappointing to see because the year prior, and this is something that I don't think a lot of people remember or recognize or maybe even just fully understand about 2017, they don't get to the wild card game without John Gray. They just don't. He was the single most important person in the second half of 2017 that made the difference between them getting to the wild card game. And, and you can say, well, but then he was awful in that game when they lost and the season ended anyway. And that, that sort of goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, right? About, well, if you don't win the World Series, I guess it's all for naught. But ultimately, that was a stretch of 15-something games where he was one of the best pitchers in all of Major League Baseball. And he powered your Colorado Rockies to one of their five postseason appearances ever. He still is, in my mind, uh, not even just in my mind, like, quite frankly, according to the statistics, one of the best pitchers in Colorado Rockies history. He owns the record still for strikeouts per nine, right? Not not overall strikeouts. That belongs to Jorge De La Rosa, though Armand Marquez is hot on his heels if and when he comes back. But John Gray was one of the most important players for that team, 17 and 18, even though he was bad in 18, I know, and, and it's so frustrating, and I still feel like he got a, a really unfair rap for the way a lot of that went down. And I was pretty critical of the team for not bringing him back. And quite frankly, I think that one of the reasons that the team didn't bring him back was because they believed, like a lot of fans believed, which was that whatever I might say about the second half of 2017 or his big strikeout games or the fact that the guy had like a 68% winning percentage at Coors Field, which for me really was the end of the argument. When you're that good in a place that's that hard to pitch and it's that hard to find guys who can do it, that was the reason to bring back John Gray. 
but I think the argument that ended up winning out was that he didn't pitch well in big games. Now, that had been true to that point in his career. I mentioned the wild card game earlier, right? There, the Even the idea that bad press and fans getting on him, and that's something he admitted. He admitted publicly. He admitted privately. He would talk about that, yes, those things would get to him, and he, he would let that impact him. But guess what? The guy's a World Series champion now, and he contributed to that. Well, can't pitch in big games. How about you get to some big games and see how he does next time? <laughs> Would have been my response if I had been in the room. I was like, if you don't think that John Gray can pitch in big games, then let's put him on the roster for the 162-game season, and when we get to the big games, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. But I think that was bad decision-making. Somebody today... We were talking about some bad decisions over the last couple of years. Of course, Nolan, DJ, and John Gray all came up. And I might be the only person on the planet who believes that the worst one of those three, at least from a philosophical standpoint, was the John Gray thing. Because they've been able to get great position players throughout their history. They've been able to figure that out. Even the fact that Ryan McMahon put up more wins above replacement this year than Nolan Arenado is an example of what I'm what I mean by that, right? It's it doesn't mean that the Nolan Arenado trade wasn't a total disaster and that that whole thing wasn't an absolute nightmare. I just mean from an on the field standpoint, it's so much harder to find the John Grays of the world, and now it's that much more frustrating that the biggest knock on him was that he had some kind of mental issue. Right, that that whatever he couldn't pitch in big games or whatever else you want to call it, and now the guy's out there doing his thing in the World Series. So I think anyone who who made that argument, I, I think all those people should look back and say, ah, got that one wrong. As it turned out, John Gray could pitch in big games. He's also one of the very few pitchers in history to have such dominance at Coors Field. That was a big miss by the Colorado Rockies. They definitely should have brought him back, especially because it only would have cost them like a million or two more a year than what they already offered. All they had to do was match. All they had to do was match what Texas was offering and he'd have come back. That being said, good for John Gray for <laughs> for not doing that and for going to a team that was willing to pay him what he was worth, was willing to make him them like their opening day starter that next season, and then went out and spent a whole bunch of money to win around him, which is the other topic that I wanted to talk about today. Should or can <laughs> the, the Colorado Rockies follow the formula of either the Rangers or the Diamondbacks, right? This is something we always talk about. Whenever a team wins the World Series, like, oh, okay, can they do it in that formula? Back in the day, it was like the Kansas City Royals were one hour. So that was an interesting parallel, right? Because you know they're not going to do it the way the Yankees or the Dodgers do it. We just know that's not going to happen. Some people really want it to, but but we know it's not going to. And so I would start by saying, as I just did, <laughs> the Rangers spent a whole lot of money and did so in a pretty short period of time. Not all of it worked out, and certainly not all of it worked out immediately. That said, Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon were absolutely phenomenal for them, being able to take on uh, the Scherzer contract, like all of that stuff, absolutely even paying John Gray a little bit more money than the Rockies were willing to pay him, right? All that stuff clearly worked out in the Rangers' favor. I just don't think, given the volatility of pitching in particular, but just 
players at Coors Field, and given the amount of money that Dick Monfort has or hasn't been willing to spend over the years, I don't think that's a way to go. Well, I should say, I don't think that's the way to go. It's certainly a way to go, not the way that I would do it. The Diamondbacks, on the other hand, are very interesting. The Diamondbacks... Now, first of all, I'm going to I'm going to introduce a, a word to the conversation that is always in baseball. The Diamondbacks got a little bit lucky. First of all, so did the Rangers. No team gets to the World Series or wins it without some luck on their side. Just not possible in the game of baseball. Luck is always a factor, especially once you get down to, uh, you know, a three-game series, especially uh, a five-game series, certainly a seven-game series. There's still luck involved in all of that. However, some of it is putting yourself in the best position there, right? The Diamondbacks did not spend a ton of money in free agency. A lot of the Diamondbacks' most important free agents, even, I would argue they're the most important one, being Merrill Kelly, starting pitcher in his 30s with no real track record of absolute dominance, who, you know, this is the type of thing that we've talked about before where he's their version of a Jorge De La Rosa, like from the past, right? The Rockies haven't had one of these in a long time, and it's certainly harder to get it here. And why I've suggested they try to attack this problem with numbers and just bring in as many guys as you can, because you can't really predict that a Merrill Kelly is going to happen, right? It's fascinating because the Diamondbacks really lack starting pitching depth. And ultimately, in the end, I think that's why they didn't win the World Series. But that's such a weird thing to say because they were able to do so much winning up until that point. I think it also put them behind the eight ball a little bit in that Philadelphia series, right? They had to like use all these bullpen guys. And a lot of the bullpen guys were like, also fine. They basically had three really good starting pitchers and the position players got hot at the right time. Um, it's not that dissimilar from other teams that we've seen, including the old seven Rockies who, you know, get hot at the right time. All the right stuff is clicking. They were probably less talented than all of the teams that they beat, but they were playing the better brand of baseball. And I do still think that because of certain, like obviously Corbin Carroll is, is up and coming and they've got a decent amount of young talent here, but and I'm not making a prediction right now. A whole, whole offseason has to play out. I also wouldn't be fully shocked if the Diamondbacks are a team that kind of falls back a little bit next year. Now, when you get to the World Series, you make a bunch of money in the postseason. You've got all that positive momentum. You should be able to swing that into making some moves that can bolster your roster and, and keep them in it, right? But I do think that there are probably more issues with that roster than I've seen with most teams that end up in the World Series, uh, there's a reason that this was a, a real long shot. I think it was like 1,701 odds or something like that that they would get to the World Series. And I don't know that they're necessarily a new powerhouse to be feared, but I do think they are a reminder. And of course, both teams are a reminder that each of them lost over 100 games two years ago, right? People tend to think when you're that bad that you are by necessity several years, four or five years away from being good again. Or 
that in order to be good, you, you're going to have to do what the Rangers did, which is go and buy all the best talent that's available. Not all the best talent. <laughs> it's an exaggeration. But as much of the best talent that's available as possible, right? But the Diamondbacks didn't do that. They didn't go and get the big name free agents. They didn't make the big splashy trades. They did. In fact, if anything, they, much like with the Nolan Arenado deal for the Rockies, didn't get a ton out of Paul Goldschmidt, ultimately. Like, that, that was a big move for them that there's no one left. It's a, it's a little bit complicated because they did end up flipping one of the guys from that trade for somebody who's a prospect in the system right now. But there's nobody on the Diamondbacks active major league roster from the Paul Goldschmidt trade, right? So you can't even sit here and say, well, what the Diamondbacks did was execute a series of really clever and really, you know, phenomenal 4D chess moves in order to get themselves to the World Series. And what they had to do is make absolutely zero mistakes. And that's how this low-budget team that really is maybe ahead of its time ended up in the series. Like, no... Like, to some extent, it is about just getting to the dance, right? To some extent, it really is about if you're hot when you get there, are you playing the best brand of baseball at the best time? And then it really is, where are you getting your production? And when you're getting top three pitching, once you get into those short series, because like the Diamondbacks were a game or two away from not even making the postseason at all. Right, which is part of why I'm saying I don't know that they're necessarily that team to be feared until they address their starting pitching depth. That said, they're the perfect proof that with good top end, if you get three good starting pitchers and you've got fairly decent depth across the board at your position player and your bullpen situation, then what you need is a bit of luck and hot baseball at the right time to get yourself into the dance and maybe even go pretty deep into the dance. I know people don't love hearing that, because they want to believe that success comes out of some sort of grand design that ends up playing out exactly as you intended it to play out. But in my mind, that's just not baseball. That just isn't how this sport works. And I think this World Series is one of the best examples of it. I also think a lot of people who are mad that this is what the World Series ended up being are mad for precisely this reason that I'm talking about, that they think that the people who play in the World Series ought to be the ones with the best grand designs. And so it should be the Dodgers and the Astros because they're the people who do the most number of transactions that get the most amount of positive response from the media and the fans and whatever. But it's like, that's that's just not how it works. That's not how the games are played, right? We don't play the games on paper. They play them out there on baseball fields. And all kinds of wild and wonderful things can happen. And so I had an absolute blast watching this postseason. I, I thought this was one of the more fun ones in a while, probably because there were so many teams in it. There, or so I should say uh, the opposite, really. There were so few teams, uh, you know, that we're used to seeing in there all the time. Uh, no Cardinals, no Yankees, no, you know, some of those stalwart franchises just weren't there bothering people. And so, uh, you know, I, I know for some folks that seems like well these teams have been i don't know rewarded for whether it's the weird postseason format or whatever else they feel like baseball has done to uh include more teams but for me it's it's even better it, it makes the basic essence 
of the game of baseball, which is that you have to plan for the chaos or, or you have to be ready for the thing that you didn't plan, right? It's not a sport where everything goes according to plan. In fact, it's a sport where everything can't go according to plan. I think that's one of the reasons why neither the Yankees nor the Dodgers has actually won the World Series. Sorry, 2020 doesn't really count. You can count if you want. But other than the strange 2020 season, right? Neither the Yankees or the Dodgers, who are the favorites every year and should be because they've got the best plans and the most money. But it doesn't go according to plan. That's the beauty of baseball. That's the beauty of what the Arizona Diamondbacks, and uh, to a lesser extent, the Texas Rangers, they did spend a whole lot of money. But still, that quick of a turnaround, go back and you find me the articles two years ago, after both teams lost 100 games, saying, yeah, but here's how they're going to get back and, and be in the World Series a couple of years from now. right? Just because people don't see it coming, just because it seems like a long shot, just because it seems like sometimes even an impossibility, a lot can change in two years. That's what this World Series taught us. A lot can change in two years. And I would say, yes, if the Rockies are going to try to follow one of these models, it's not to duplicate the luck of the Diamondbacks. Again, luck is always going to be a factor. But to recognize that if you structure the strengths of your team correctly, you can maximize a roster that isn't going to match up with the Dodgers or the Yankees or the Astros. Because what? You're never going to match up with those teams. You don't need to match up with them on paper. You need to beat them on the baseball diamond. So thank you all for listening in to this episode of 20th and Blake. Let me know what you thought. If you think there are any other lessons that the Rockies can learn from either the Rangers or the Diamondbacks. And one last time, congratulations to our friend, John Gray. Thank you all for listening into this episode. I hope you will continue to be absolutely awesome out there. You know that I will continue to be absolutely Drew Creaseman in here. And until next time, I will see you at the ballpark.